Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest is Steve Lubetkin of Lubetkin Communications. Uh, he has been producing uh, audio, video, e-learning, and multimedia business programming for corporate and professional clients for five years. He is a longtime podcaster. Um, I had uh, hoped to have him on the show several years back when I was podcasting at the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, I think maybe even three years back, uh, but we were unable to work it out. Um, I am pleased to have him with me on this podcast. Eric, it's a pleasure to be here. This is going to be a podcast about the state of podcasting. Um, uh, podcasting uh, for business communications is what we will focus on. And uh, what I'd like to do is start uh, with uh, a discussion about creating a podcast, because I know, Steve, you are creating uh, several podcasts for clients and for yourself now, right? That's right. We, um, I, I like to tell people, Eric, that I've been creating podcasts since I was a teenager when I first got bit with the radio bug and sat in my basement um, creating pretend radio shows using a reel-to-reel tape recorder and a turntable. And when I've admitted that to people, I've found out that an awful lot of other people did the same thing, too. Um, but then, you know, we would play it back and uh, listen to the quote-unquote radio show. We didn't know it was a podcast back then, of course, um, and we didn't have any way to distribute it beyond uh, the basement walls. But um, those skills and my later experience working in radio um, served me well when, I, when the podcasting world exploded on the scene a few years back. When did you so, start podcasting? I guess I actually started doing it in 2005. Um, we started the uh, the business as a uh, PR consulting practice in at the end of 2004 when I left corporate after 30 years and uh, very quickly realized that the social media world was going to be the next frontier for uh, professional communicators and I wanted to be part of that. I've always had a technology bent in my um, in my portfolio, if you will. Um, I, I have uh, told people on more than one occasion I've had an email address on my business card since 1988, um, and even further back than that, if you want to really uh, scratch for a, for a starting point, when I was a newspaper reporter in the late 70s, um, I and a companion were sent to cover a Grateful Dead concert in Englishtown, New Jersey. Uh, this is in 1977, carrying what was then called a portable uh, data terminal. Um, which we carried on a helicopter and landed at the concert and then realized that not only did we have to find a place to plug the darn thing in because there was no battery power, but we also had to find a telephone that we could plug into the acoustic modem so that we could transmit our stories. So, um, so I've been doing technology for a really long time and, uh, and getting into podcasting seemed to be a logical extension when I was looking for the next direction after, after so many years in corporate. Um, so the definition of podcasting, for those who don't know, is the distribution of a file via an RSS feed. And I'll tell you, several times I've um, uh, judged the PRSA Silver Anvil and Bronze Anvil Awards. By the way, if you're a PRSA member and uh, you want to take advantage of one of the greatest benefits of being a member, it's the opportunity to get together with your colleagues and really see the best work. And every time I wind up volunteering to judge uh, people start piling the digital stuff my way. And I, I can't tell you, even last year, judging, uh, I reviewed uh, podcast um, uh, submissions, and then I would go to the website, and there would be no RSS feed. It would just be a bunch of digital downloads parked on a page. Um, and it sort of blows my mind that even today, people still don't really often know that a podcast means that it's delivered via RSS. Um, That's true. When you That's look true. at your stats for the different podcasts that you're producing, I don't know if it's true for you, but when I look at mine, I find that uh, you know many of the downloads happen from people who actually just come to the show blog and just listen via flash streaming right off the site rather than via RSS. We get some of that, but um, the advantage of the RSS is uh, manyfold. Um, in addition to giving people an easy way to subscribe to a number of uh, programs or, or blog posts 
without having to actually physically visit them one at a time. Um, it also is your um, keys to the kingdom, if you will, to get your podcasts inserted into Apple's iTunes Music Store. And, you know, as one of the largest marketplaces for people who are already predisposed to listening to and downloading audio and video content, um, it's kind of a place that you want to be. And so having an RSS feed is sort of the first baby step in that direction. Um, it's also extremely useful in terms of the, uh, the search results and the search engine optimization. You know, there are, there are many schools of thought on how to do search engine optimization. And the thing that we found is most effective is what is usually called organic search optimization. And that is posting really good content and making sure that the meta tags are correct, the keywords and the text data that accompanies the rich media file. And uh, making sure that that's done properly. And if it is, you get rewarded for it with a much higher ranking in, in searches on Google. Uh, what do you use to uh, measure the um, number of subscribers uh, who, who subscribe to the RSS feed of a show you produce? Well, we're using you know all of the usual tools. We, we use FeedBurner, which is, a, of course, owned by Google to, to generate the RSS feeds. And, um, you know, there are some people who are declare that they need to do their own feeds and manipulate it in a certain way and stuff. And my attitude is, you know, if you have an RSS feed manufacturer available that right before it sends the feed out onto the Internet, plugs it through the Google box and indexes everything that goes out, why wouldn't you want to do that? Because in my mind, the ultimate goal of any of this outreach for corporate clients and for trade associations and nonprofits, whoever the organizations are, whoever the clients are, the ultimate goal is to get them noticed and to get them above the noise that permeates both online and offline. And in particular, I do a lot of speaking, just as you do, Eric, and I talk to um, audiences of students and, and PR practitioners, and whenever I ask them how they find solutions to problems, Almost invariably, I would say 97 people out of 100 will say they use Google. Um, the other three will raise their hand to Yahoo. Uh, but for the, for the vast majority of people looking for solutions to problems, they're looking at Google. And so for any company that wants to be visible for whatever products or services they're trying to promote, they want to figure out a way to get it into a Google search in high visibility and, and do what we used to call in newspaper above the fold. And above the fold means before people have to click to either scroll to the bottom of the page or click to the next page on a Google search. You need to be very high up in the search. And years ago, people would uh, take an ad in the yellow pages and they would name their company AAAAA Exterminators because that brought you to the top of the search. You know, it's an, it's a, it's an important distinction. I think a lot of people maybe don't think about it. Um, if you use a package like G uh, Google Analytics, it's a great way to measure HTML, but it doesn't measure XML RSS, right? It doesn't measure that feed, which is why that's correct, so right. many people, you know, use FeedBurner like you do. I mean, they're almost the only game in town at this point. Uh, but let me ask you something. When you look at your FeedBurner stats, um, just, uh, you know, from a generalization standpoint, what percentage do you, uh, of the downloads do you see coming from iTunes? Just how important is having distribution on iTunes? iTunes is important for a couple of reasons. Um, I think one of the most important is for the client's perception. Um, you know, most clients like the idea of being able to say to their peers, um, we have a podcast program series and it's available in iTunes. Um, now, there's some, some people who are um, gaming the iTunes software. There is a way to insert your programs in iTunes or appear to insert them in iTunes by, by creating a link that people click on from the website. And basically what it does is instead of opening a default audio player for uh, – it, it changes the default audio player is what I'm trying to say. From, say, a Windows Media Player for MP3 files, it makes iTunes the default player. So iTunes opens and the podcast plays and it appears to be – that the it appears to the listener that the program has been inserted in iTunes, and it really isn't. And it's it's pretty easy to detect that just by looking at the way the link is configured. Um, but if it's in iTunes, it's available worldwide, um, and it's searchable. And if you've got the keyword tags done properly in the RSS feed, you you pick up an additional audience. And we found I I would say probably somewhere between 
10 and 15 percent of the audience comes from iTunes. Um, and, you know, it's important also for people to realize the audiences are not large unless you have something um, incredibly, um, incredibly popular. You know, I suppose if you're doing podcasts about uh, the latest Michael Jackson story or the latest Hollywood gossip of some sort. But uh, for most business to business podcasting, it's really not about huge numbers. What it's about is identifying people who have a particular need and are interested in your content. Um, it's the exact opposite of the traditional approach to direct marketing where, you know, they'll throw 250,000 direct mail pieces against the wall and they'll be overjoyed if, you know, one, 1% one of them get any kind of a response. What's happening in podcasting and, and people who search out this kind of content is they have a need. They have a problem they want to solve and they're looking for someone who has a solution. And so it's a pre-selected, pre-qualified, self-selected audience that's looking for the content. So anyone who listens to it has already said, this is something I, I need and I'm interested in. So, you know, they're much, much smaller audiences, but much, more, uh, much better qualified audiences. Give us an overview, Steve. What goes into creating a podcast? For the, the podcast that we do for clients, um, you know, I'm calling on, as I mentioned before, the uh, experience I had working as a uh, radio newscaster and production engineer back in uh, another life almost uh, over 30 years ago and, and just bringing it into the digital age. But what we're basically doing is saying to the client, you now own, in effect, a, a radio station or a television station and you have total control over the content that you deliver to your audience and your audience is your clients, your employees, your prospective clients, um, anyone else who might be helped by or influenced by your point of view and your knowledge. What do you want to put up? And, you know, most companies regard themselves as experts in their field. They have some people on staff who are really knowledgeable about the uh, the products they sell or the services that they provide and giving the audience a sense of that um, without the filter of the mainstream media, I'm afraid to say. You know, you only get a couple of minutes if you're lucky enough to get on a television news show or on a radio broadcast. But here you have the ability to, to produce long-form radio or long-form television programming for your clients that can convey in great detail some of the topics you deal with. We just finished a nine-part video podcast series for a leading law firm here in New Jersey. That is, they have a, a, a practice devoted to environmental law, and they have become expert in the, the recently changed environmental regulations in New Jersey. There's an elaborate uh, regulatory thicket, if you will, of, of laws that you have to comply with um, regarding site remediation for sites that were polluted by previous owners. And in this nine-part video series, which we recorded during a half-day seminar, they are going into excruciating detail almost about what people need to know for different aspects of this law. It's only going to be of interest to the segment of the population that has this type of problem. But you know, it's going to be extremely, extremely valuable to that, to that particular audience. What strikes me as so smart about something like that is, you know, the client is having the symposium, they're having the event, and what you're doing is you're coming in, you're extending the reach of what they're doing already. You know, so many people look at these channels and they think, wow, this is great, I can create my own content, but I mean, as we know, it takes time and energy to create good content. So I always like to say, you know, what is going on already? Where if you could just record that and make it available as a podcast, you could extend the reach of it. Yeah, exactly. One of the uh, one of the earliest audio podcast programs we started producing when I first got into the podcasting business um, here in Southern New Jersey, our South Jersey Chamber of Commerce has a partnership with the Graduate School of Business at Rutgers University, which is also here in South Jersey in Camden, right across the river from Philadelphia. Um, and every quarter they produce a, a quarterly business outlook panel, which is open to the public. It's, a, it's one of the few programs that's put on by the chamber for free. It happens to be sponsored by the law firm I just did the video for, but that's sort of uh, just a nice, uh, nice connection. The uh, program involves a one-hour panel discussion with business leaders from different segments of the economy talking about their outlook for the coming quarter. And the program is live, it, uh, or not the podcast, but the, the program is live in front of an audience that usually numbers about 300 people. And there's enormous value for business people to go to this event 
and network with each other and talk to each other and exchange business cards and all of that. But the, the, the fact remains that for those people, just as you said, extending the life of the program, for those people who can't be there for, because of other commitments, they want to know what, what the panel said. And giving them the opportunity within less than 24 hours, we can turn around the podcast, to get the, the audio up where they can download it and listen to it. And we've been very fortunate that every quarter the podcast draws uh, several thousand listeners, which is a pretty healthy number, um, of people who may or may not have even attended the thing. But uh, we're providing a service. It expands the, um, the life of the event significantly. And, um, and it's also you know a halo effect for the producers of the event that they've done something to to preserve it in a way that it can be useful to people beyond just the people who attended. You know, what surprised me about the podcast when I checked it out was that it was, in fact, a video podcast. Are you talking about the uh, the quarterly business outlook? No, I'm talking about the one with the law firm. Oh, okay, sure. It was no, a video they... podcast. And I remember one time I was teaching a social media boot camp for PRSA, and I had in the class the folks from Victoria's Secret – and the folks from Countrywide Financial. And somebody asked, how do you know whether you should do a video podcast or an audio podcast? And in that setting, it was very easy. I said, well, if you're Victoria's Secret, it's a video podcast. <laughs> if you're country. But, but seriously, I've always thought it's hard. It would be harder to get an audience for a video podcast. Because when someone can give you not just their ears, but their eyes as well, you know, you're probably up against Dancing with the Stars and Oprah, whereas if all you need is their ears, all you're up against is the radio or music they may be listening to when they're working out. So why the decision to do a video podcast in that case? Um, I, you know, it was a decision by the client that they wanted to try video. We've done some audio for them, and it's met with some success. Um, I think they felt, you know, they were doing a seminar with a live audience, and the the extra ad of of having something visual, particularly during the Q and A portion of the program, where there's you know back and forth between the the panelists and the audience, the live audience in the room. Um, increasingly, people are asking for video, and increasingly, the online audience I think is expecting video. When I first started doing this, I, I remember after the first maybe year or so, um, my wife, who I bounce a lot of stuff off of in terms of uh, the strategic direction because she's really good at uh, picking up on, on, you know, just ordinary people and how they react to things. She said to me, what's keeping you awake at night about the business? And I said, you know, people are starting to ask, should we do this in video? And I was a little bit concerned about that at the time because we hadn't really reached critical mass. The, um, the iPods that could play video were rather expensive at the time. And I knew that two years down the line, that was going to be, not be an issue. Everybody was going to have something to play video on. The bandwidth was going to improve and so forth and so on. My biggest concern was not having the equipment lined up and ready to go. And we were able to address that. We got the equipment in. And increasingly, people are asking for video because they're doing events that, um, you know, they want to capture it for video and the nice part about it is if you do video you can always create audio we did a uh, video podcast a couple of years ago with uh, one of our mutual friends peter shankman of the helper reporter out.com uh, list peter was a guest speaker at a group in uh, new hope pennsylvania called the river communications group i watched that steve i watched okay. that podcast well, what was interesting was, um, you know, after we put up the video, someone uh, emailed us and said, I think he emailed Peter and said, uh, gee, the, the video was great, but, you know, I really would like to take it with me on my iPod. Is there an audio version? And Peter emailed me and said, you know, I think, I think the email he sent me was just question mark. <laughs> and, um, you know, the nice thing about doing the video is that if you have the video, you can always make an audio podcast out of it. Um, and so I did. I mean, it was relatively simple to do. And we posted the audio one for people who wanted the audio. And, you know, they, they, they're getting a comparable number of hits. I think, you know, some people want to listen. Some people want to watch. So we're talking they, to what you Steve. can't do. I got to tell you, I'm sorry. Eric, but you, what you can't do is you can't go back and do video if you only did audio in the first place. We're talking to Steve Lubetkin with professional podcasts. And uh, when we return, we're going to talk about video podcasting. On May 6th and 7th, 2010, in New York City, co-chairs Elizabeth Albrecht and Eric Schwartzman, with the support of PRSA, bring you the third annual Digital Impact Conference, featuring keynote presentations from Gabriel Stricker, Director of Global Communications and Public Affairs at Google, Jennifer Preston, 
social media editor of the New York Times, and Jeremiah Oyang, analyst and partner at the Altimeter Group. To save $100 on admission, visit ontherecordpodcast.com for the promo code before you register. So, with video podcasting, Steve, give us your 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 top picks for your best gear, both on the audio and video side. Oh, geez, I uh, I didn't rehearse uh, the uh, the latest and the greatest. We're using uh, standard definition equipment for the podcast that we produce. We're not at the point, I think, on the web where it's it's absolutely critical to be using high definition gear i will say that um whatever you use there are some awfully good quality cameras out today at very very reasonable prices but what um if if you're planning to do business podcasts videos you want to look for a camera that allows you to plug in an external microphone um and you know one of my big bugaboos about a lot of the video that's posted online is that there seems to be an ethos in the social media world that everything has to look raw and rough and unedited and amateurish. And, you know, I am probably alone or nearly alone in this, but I strongly disagree. Um, I think that people will forgive poor quality video or, or marginal quality video. We've seen that in the fact that people have not stormed the CNN center in Atlanta because of the... Uh, reports from the field where uh, they've sent a correspondent without a video crew and he's using a webcam to do his report. Um, People seem to be okay with that. But if the sound is bad, it just is really, really irritating and difficult, frankly, to watch and and difficult to listen to. If someone goes to a seminar uh, with with one of the low-end pocket cameras that plug into your USB port and you sit in the back of the room hand-holding the camera while you record a famous uh, social media expert talking at at, at a keynote address, it's going to be really hard to watch because the sound will be bad, the focus will be off, and the camera will be shaking. Um, If you're going to do that, you need a tripod for the camera, and you need to be able to somehow plug a microphone in that is closer to the speaker. And so, you know, again, it's it's a question of using some professional production techniques you don't need to be you know a network quality film editor or network quality videographer but you need to at least try to learn some of the techniques that these folks use and the the cost of the software for editing is almost inconsequential these days you can get a very very decent quality uh, non-linear editing package for video for under two hundred dollars if you want to spend more you certainly can and you know, I've I've had to bite the bullet and spend more because I've needed certain effects for for certain productions. But the reality is, you can do it for a lot less. And and you know, there are people who say, "Oh, we just want it to look raw." You don't want to ever ever put raw footage up on the web without any kind of context. I've I've actually seen uh, someone who does very much what you do, Eric, uh, who who has gone to some uh, PR conferences. They shot uh, some video interviews with people, and they put it up on their website. And the first ten minutes of the video is uh, is a view of some empty chairs. Um, there's really no need for that. It's really kind of inexcusable to do it that way. Yeah, I think I know. I know who you're talking about. I couldn't be uh, more with you on the note about making sure that there's um, an external mic jack on that video camera because I I believe you. I mean, I think people are more willing to watch bad video as long as there's good sound than they would be to watch good video with bad sound. Sure, you can always you can always do something else. And there again, you know, is the question: is it audio or is it a video podcast? If you do video, at least do it with decent audio so that, you know, if all else fails, you've got an audio podcast. I remember one time I was at, um, at a, one of the conferences for the video game industry, and uh, Engadget uh, had a team of people there uh, covering uh, uh, various announcements coming out of the different uh, exhibitors that were at the show. Excuse me. And um, they were using – they had a pretty interesting rig. They had a Sanyo Exacti which is a little handheld, uh, you know, real portable, ultra-small HD camera. And it does have an audio uh, uh, mic jack in. They had into that a, um, a wireless uh, portable uh, thing on the, the 
cameraman was had on his belt. He also had uh, iPod uh, um, headphones plugged into this thing. And then it was Veronica Belmont uh, who was actually doing the interviews, and she was just holding a wireless um, like reporter mic that had a mic flag on it. Sure, and that's, that's a very common um, approach, and we, in fact, do that with our cameras as well. It's just a lot bigger because the camera's bigger, but, but uh, very commonly you'll see a, a network or, or, or a local TV uh, news gathering crew will have the camera you know, already rigged up with uh, the wireless receivers plugged into the mic jacks and one of the one of the other tricks that i learned is if you if typically the prosumer cameras do not have the broadcast uh, quality xlr three pin microphone jacks on them but you can buy um mixers that either attach to the bottom of the camera or attach you you can attach them to your belt with a belt clip or hang them on your tripod um, which allow you, um, they give you XLR jacks and volume controls, and they also give you line inputs that you could select. Um, and then from that mixer, it plugs into the mic jack on the camera, which for, for prosumer or high-end consumer cameras, if it does have a jack, it's typically a one-eighth inch mini plug uh, that is a stereo jack, so you can split left and right. And, and that's also something that's kind of important. Uh, in terms of sound is if you can isolate, if you have more than one speaker um, in the in the program, you have a left channel and a right channel, you isolate one speaker on each channel, and then in the post-production process, you can actually separate those two tracks. And, um, you know, if you have situations like we had earlier in our recording where I'm speaking over you trying to do an outro or an intro, um, you can separate that out and, and isolate it. Steve, in my opinion... That's why the flip is absolutely work worthless for doing, you know, any sort of business applications because none of those flip cameras have an audio in jack. So, you know, you wind up with this, you know, video and the sound is just so terrible. There's really very little you can do with it. Yeah, I think that, you know, people have become smitten with it because it's simple and it is it is a simple, it is a clever little gadget. The one problem that I found with it pretty quickly after I first saw one is that, um, and I, I'm not sure this is true of the later models, I think it is, it's limited to the internal memory. They don't have any kind of removable memory device. And when I first started looking at playing around with those kind of cameras to see if I could use them for anything, um, I re- recognized immediately that's going to be a problem. If you go, for example, people think they're going to use that for their home movies or their home videos, and, and they take it to Disney World with them, and then they realize that after they've shot two hours of video... They have to run back to the hotel and plug it into the laptop or the camera is basically useless. I want to ask you a follow-up question on HD because I know you said that you're not using HD. And one of the things I realized you know, when I bought an HD camera that, my God, those files are just enormous. So how do you deal with that? I mean – you know, if you're just, basically you, you buy the HD camera and then you realize, oh, my God, I need a new computer. I, I need, uh, you know, more space. I mean, dealing with HD is really difficult. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Eric. It, it, one of the reasons why I've been delaying a move to HD, I think the, the, the whole issue with HD is that increasingly the mainstream broadcasters and companies that produce content for them are demanding it from the freelancers that they work with. So anyone who expects to do content that will ultimately potentially be used in a traditional broadcast environment is going to have to think in terms of HD because you can always, you can downsize it to standard def if you need to, but you can, you know, just like you can't go from audio to video, you can't go from standard def to high def. You can upsize it or you can letterbox it, but you're, you're kind of limited. So what people are trying to do is start creating the, the new generation of assets in HD, but you're absolutely right. The, the storage requirements are much higher. Um, the, the first couple of HD cameras I started looking at were, the, I guess, the Panasonics, which had the, um, the P2 cards. And one P2 card is, uh, at the time they started at 16 gigs, I think they're now up to 32 gigs, but you need three or four of them in, in a camera for a full capacity. And then what do you do with three times or four times 32 gigs, where do you put it? Because you have to take it off the cards in order to use the cards again. So you're, you're creating rather dramatically large storage requirements. The only good news there is that the, uh, 
the USB uh, external drives have come down rather dramatically in price. I just bought a, yet another one. I probably have a three terabytes sitting here in the studio and various drives. And I just bought another 500 gigs, and it cost me under $80. So, you know, the good news is the price of those things has come down, but you still have to be able to manage it. And the, the RAID arrays that people are building are, you know, three, four, five terabytes. And, you know, it becomes expensive when you start doing it with, with RAID drives and things. Well, let, let me ask you this, because, you know, it seems to me as though uh, the um, the gap between the computer and the television, I mean, that's that's probably a matter of months now. Um, so many of us now figured out a way to, uh, you know, watch television off the Internet or maybe, you know, where we have our TV, we have cable, but we also can switch it over to a monitor function and use it as a monitor and and watch watch things on a big screen. It seems to me that if you're going to upload video content to the Internet and be ready for the phase when, you know, the digital living room is here and people can really watch YouTube on a big screen, wouldn't you have to be uploading HD for it to hold up on a 60 or a 50-inch screen? I think if you're going to watch it on a on a 50-inch screen, yeah, you're probably going to need very high resolution and enormous bandwidth. And, you know, we're, we're probably not at the point where that's a, yet a real feasible way of doing, you know, the kind of watching you're describing. But, I but mean, can't you do it it's now? It's inevitable. I mean, yeah, you can. You can you go can. to YouTube and you can find an HD clip. And, and if, it's pl- if, you, if you have a, you know, a cord between your computer and your, 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 your plasma screen in the living room, you can blow it up full screen and watch it. I've done that. I mean, I've watched a number of shows there. And it just seems like, you know, if it's, if it's standard def instead of HD, when you blow it up, there's just not enough definition there for it to really be, you know, too enjoyable. Since we haven't got the uh, 50-inch screen yet in the house, I haven't had that problem. But uh, at some point, maybe we will. Let's talk for a minute about uh, podcasting software. So, I mean, I know most people are using Audacity or Pro Tools for the, for the audio. Um, I know when it comes to video, a lot of people just use iMovie. Um, uh, what are you using? What do you think the best tools are? What do you, what do you recommend? Uh, I was actually very surprised when I first heard about Audacity and started using it to find out how really functional it is. And for the vast majority of the kind of voice podcasts we do, which a lot of the podcasts are essentially interview shows. It's very much like what we're doing now. And uh, it's, it's more than adequate for most of those. We do use a couple of other tools for sound processing. Um, there's a wonderful shareware program called N-Track Studio, which I've been using for a number of years. It was one of the first uh, digital audio programs I used before I found out about Audacity. Um, it costs about 50 bucks. It is a multi-track uh, recording studio, basically, that um, is probably optimized for people who are musicians because it has a lot of musician-type functions and MIDI functions, but it also has the capability of using a lot of the, the plugins that um, conform to the uh, VST standard. So um, we're using some uh, sound processing plugins to enhance the sound, to minimize noise in some cases. And then, of course, uh, the program that uh, we both know and love, Levelator, which comes out of the Conversations Network, which is a real nice uh, program for evening out the uh, sound volumes. And, you know, Eric, it it still surprises me today that even people who've been podcasting for years don't take the time to do the compression and equalization to get the sound levels between various segments of the show to be smooth and even and, and stay the same. And I always find myself with some shows, you know, cranking it up for one segment and then my ears are bleeding because to the next segment, the volume is so much higher. You know, I, um, I was listening to uh, Read Write Web's Read Write Talk podcast and uh, I, they had just that problem. So I actually I tweeted uh, out to them today a link to the Conversations Network's um, tool, uh, Levelator. We're talking to Steve Lubetkin with Professional Podcasts. And uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to wrap it up uh, with a discussion about um, uh, the future of podcasting. The top-rated, longest-running social media communications training program comes to Los Angeles this August 2010. Bring your laptop, log on, and learn the ins and outs of effective social media communications and search engine optimization. Reserve your space by logging on to www.newmediaprbootcamp.com. 
Uh, we're back with uh, Steve Lubetkin. And, uh, you know, Steve, I know you're using podcasts a lot for business-to-business communications. Yes. Often um, when I'm talking to people about podcasts, their first uh, impulse is, well, this is great for, uh, you know, con- business-to-consumer marketing, but it doesn't really work for B2B. Uh, how, what, what is – what what makes a business to business podcast different? There, is there anything that distinguishes it from a strategic standpoint? Well, I think that business to business podcasts work uh, as effectively as business to consumer. It's not it's not an either or. Many of our clients are businesses that market their services to other businesses. One of the companies we do quite a bit of podcasting for is a. Uh, a global insurance and reinsurance company, Ace Group, which is headquartered in Philadelphia, New York, um, they are not an insurance company that sells, you know, homeowners and life insurance policies to consumers. They sell uh, policies that cover very specific business risks. And so the podcasts that we've done for them have been conversations with their subject matter experts about these very unique business risks. We've done a series of podcasts about um, security issues, particularly for um, uh, company employees. There's a couple of podcasts we've done on kidnap and extortion insurance, which is a highly specialized field. It's not something that you or I are going to go out and buy a policy for, but for many companies, it's part of an overall um, risk management program for the safety and security of their executives and their employees, um, and it, it's something that they need to consider. Now, the conversation is not about how great the policy is. The conversation is a practical discussion of the security risks that companies face in different geographic regions and and what are some of the considerations that companies need to have in place in addition to making insurance a part of their overall risk so that's that's one aspect of it you know another is uh, network security for uh, computer networks it's a big issue for companies that have customer databases or transactions with that involve credit card numbers um, there's uh, there are some risk considerations there so we have the subject matter expert on cyber liability talking about how companies need to train their employees to protect the network how the, the safeguards they need to put in place for the network and again all of the other risks that are associated with protecting that data so it's it's a very different conversation. It's a conversation about running your business, if you will, and, you can and we see, do that for others. You can see the training uh, and sort of e-learning applications. Those are a natural. In fact, um, I'm looking here at a story uh, in the Seattle uh, Post-Intelligencer blog that says Steve Ballmer uh, up at Microsoft is uh, starting a podcast so that he can communicate internally with Microsoft's 90,000 employees, which makes a lot of sense. But what are, what how do you use a podcast for business to business marketing? I mean, is that realistic? And if so, how would you measure the outcome? And are you doing anything interesting now in the world of B2B uh, podcasting that you can talk about? Uh, yeah, again, I think, you know, it's part of a an overall um, marketing effort. It's not just that we're doing a podcast, but uh, the podcast is part of a an outreach program that may include you know placement of articles in trade publications and the article is amplified uh with a, a box that says you know for more information listen to the conversation here uh and I the mean, person would you who expect those listeners to subscribe via rss are they gonna i mean is that is that audience because when you look at the stats that are out there on adoption of RSS, what you find is, uh, you know, it's usually under 20% of all active internet users um, using RSS, but it tends to be a very influential audience. A lot of uh, journalists, a lot of people who um, create content listening to podcasts and getting information from podcasts. But when you talk about business to business marketing, you know, you say you're marketing to a a senior manager, you know, what's the likelihood that, you know, you're going to get them through RSS? Are you going to get them through RSS? Are you going to get them through digital download? Does it not matter? Yeah, I think what what happens is that there's a discovery process that takes place, Eric. I think they they may read the article in the trade publication uh, either online or offline and make a mental note that there's additional content and then they go and listen to it and say, hey, you know, this is pretty good. Um, I wonder if there's more. And then they'll go back looking for more. And that's frankly uh, how people find, you know, podcast series. They might 
hear about an episode in a podcast series, just as, you know, they might be searching for something on podcasting and they might come across this conversation. Um, and then they say, hey, you know, this Schwartzman guy's pretty good. Let me go listen to some of the other stuff he's done. And they'll seek out the other stuff. And if they, over time, become satisfied that the content is what they want, they may then decide it's easier to subscribe to the feed. Podcast, RSS, RSS feeds are still, um, it, it's not... It doesn't roll off the tip of people's technological tongue the way downloading an MP3 file does. It's it's still a little bit geeky to do an RSS feed or to, to monitor feeds. So I wouldn't expect senior executives to do it, but I would expect the people who are advising those executives to, to be aware of it. You know, one of the things that comes up often, I'm sure you've heard the question, it, it, you know, what we both talk to, to uh, PR groups is, Oh my gosh, there's so much to know. How how can we keep up on this stuff? And the correct answer, uh, which I've heard at more than one uh, event, uh, I think John Bell from uh, 360 Degree Conversation, the one that um, helped me out with the agency. Um, it's Ogilvy, I think. Okay, um, I've actually never heard the podcast. I don't know. Uh, it's not a it's not a podcast, but he spoke at a PRSA conference um, in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. Okay. And, and, you know, that question was asked, and he said, you know, you guys are the communications advisors. You have to know this stuff. You have to know everything about communications. You have to know about all the communications channels that are potentially available so that you can tell your boss about them. So it's not a case of, oh, my God, how do we keep up? You have no choice. But you that, really that's, a, you know, know. The, the, it's one thing to say it's a responsibility, but if the question is how do you do it? Yeah. How do you and, do and it? it? I mean, I thought you were going to say you listen to podcasts because I'll tell you, I learn so much listening to podcasts. Oh, there's no question about it. And I do, too. And I, I try to listen to them as much as I can. Um, it, it's it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's absolutely no question about I it. I love but. listening to podcasts. And as a matter of fact, I actually enjoy the audio podcasts more than the video podcasts. Yeah, you don't have to concentrate as much and you can take them with you. You know, the last thing we want is people watching video podcasts while they're driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. Heard a terrific podcast just this week. Um, John Wall, who does Marketing Over Coffee with Christopher Penn and John Wall, was interviewing Ron Plouffe, who's written a new book called Read This First. It's a primer for executives. Uh, how many times have you been in a meeting with an executive and they just don't know the basics? So you can't really have a good discussion with them about how they could integrate new media or social media into their outreach efforts because they don't have a basic understanding of the vocabulary. And right. so what, what Ron did was wrote this book, wrote the book, read this first for something you can hand off to the executive and say, Hey, read this first and then we'll talk. And uh, it was a brilliant podcast. So, I mean, I, I just, I'll tell you, I, I enjoy it so much. Yeah. It's, and again, it's, it's a case of the, you know, being able to convey the information in a, compact, efficient, take it with you and do it whenever it's convenient for you kind of a form. And that's why I don't think contrary to what some of uh, the people in the blogosphere have been saying, I, I really don't think it's going to die or go away. I think it's a very useful way of not only uh, disseminating information efficiently, but also, you know, for companies that are a little bit uncomfortable with the wild and woolly feel of, of the blogosphere and Twitter and some of these other uh, opportunities to communicate, it, it does have that element of control. It is your program and you can edit it. So final question, Steve. Um, you know, attention is now the scarcest commodity because there's so much information out there. And um, you know, one of the guys who I, uh, I I follow pretty pretty actively, I think he has such interesting ideas, is Steve Rubell at Edelman. I've been following him, you know, since he launched his blog and before he was at Edelman, and I've had him on the podcast a couple of times. I'll have links to uh, his ep his interviews in the show notes. Um, one of the things he's done recently, well, not so recently now, is he's he's actually transferred his online presence over to the service Posterous. Um, which is a service that allows you to um, post all your content there, be it a photo, a video, audio, text post, anything, and then they'll feed it out to your Facebook or your uh, Twitter or your Flickr or any of the other social sites you're using. This idea being that you have one central online home base 
and then these tentacles that extend the reach into these other social networking services where active conversations um, occur. And I heard him actually interviewed on for immediate release, the Hobson and Holtz report. I had that one in my uh, player. I haven't listened to it. yet. Great episode. Highly recommend it. And one of the things he says is he says, you know, I'm, I'm sort of rethinking how I use social media because, you know, attention is such a scarce commodity. I want to try to figure out a way to give people information very quickly. I'm not sure if it's infographics or charts or what it is, short blog posts. And so that's got me thinking a lot about podcasting because you and I have been on this conversation for about 45 minutes now. I've enjoyed it. I learn actually through these discussions as well. And um, and I uh, often when I'm listening to four immediate release, which can run an hour plus, you know, I enjoy listening to, to all 60 minutes. But I wonder, do we as podcasters need to be rethinking how we go about doing these shows? Do we need to figure out a way to encapsulate more useful content in a shorter period of time moving forward uh, if we're going to continue to, uh, you know, be a force? Well, you know, I think that um, Mark Twain's comment about um, um, I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short letter um, is really true. I think shortening it or condensing it involves an incredible amount of pre-production and post-production work that most of us don't have time to do. It would be really wonderful if, um, you know, podcasts like yours and mine and, and Neville and Shell's um, had the opportunity to include more um, produced uh, essays, you know, um, and I think about as, as the model, the NPR long form reports, you know, where they go out on location and you get a, an audio um, essay that includes the sounds and the, you know, you can almost feel that you're there because they're recording in stereo and they're editing in stereo and, and you, you have the live interviews on site. And I wish I could spend more time doing that kind of thing and, and encouraging clients to do it because I, I think that stuff really works very well. And we didn't even talk about um, the approach we've taken to uh, video news wrapper reports, which, which comes close to that kind of thing. It's a little like video news releases, except that uh, we don't intend them to be used on broadcast. We, we put them up on the web. Um, but that kind of thing where, where you're reporting from the field and incorporating some of the uh, sights and sounds, if you will, of being on location. I'd, I'd love to hear more of that. You know, it's interesting. Andy Lark showed me Epic 2014 at the first Newcom Forum, which was up in Larkspur. That's the event produced by the Society for New Communications Research. And it blew my mind the first time I saw it. Uh, I, I, I continue to include it in my New Media PR boot camp that I teach for the PRSA. And there's a line in there where they suggest that um, uh, we'll, there will come an age where there will be fact-stripping robots, which will pull pieces of information out of different stories and create one story edited by computer with all the different facts from all these different places of information and, and you know, in Utah at the PRSA International Conference, I guess that was three years ago, two years ago, uh-huh. um, they actually had some students from Northwestern University who had created something called News 7. I'll, I'll have links to all this in the show notes. And what these students did was they figured out a way to monitor uh, both YouTube and the blogosphere and create a dynamically generated news program anchored by avatars. And these avatars uh, would speak the news uh, f- with voice-to-text translation software. And uh, the video that was shown behind them on the screen was uh, all taken from YouTube. It was, it was quite crude. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, it was created three years ago by students in grad school. And I, it sort of got me thinking, my gosh, you know, fact-stripping, fact-stripping robots, you know, that may actually be- come to fruition. We may see that. I don't know. I don't know how the local news is where you live, Eric. But the local news on TV in Philadelphia sounds like it's been done by fact-stripping robots. Um, you know, it, unfortunately, that that does provide, you know, the excuse for getting rid of the the people factor. And I think that we could do probably a whole series of podcasts on why it's important to keep the the editors and the reporters and the true journalists in journalism. But you know. That's a well, topic well, good another point. time. Good point. But the, the point I wanted to make was this idea of partial content consumption. Could we come to the place where, 
you know, we can continue to do these long-winded discussions and, you know, have a, a moment, uh, a glimmer of, of truth here and there that's meaningful, and then leave it to technology to siphon out what's meaningful. I think if we're going to do that, the key is going to be uh, show notes. It's going to be making sure we have really good text transcripts of what's being said, and also not necessarily giving away, you know, the end result of the conversation, but rather teasing that conversation so that people actually do listen. And that's um, sort of, I guess, you know, my, my axe to grind, something I want to share with listeners. Um, because one of the things that makes this podcast really tough to produce for me is I actually do do search engine optimized show notes for every single episode. If I didn't, I'd be able to produce a lot more content, get it out a lot quicker. But because I do that, um, it takes more time. Now, the second piece that goes along with that um, just for listeners, is because I do do that, what that means, Steve, is I get to listen to this again, and I get to go through it and actually think about everything you said, describe it, put the links in. I'll actually go and visit everything we discussed and check out the websites. So for me, right now, what I'm trying to do is keep the conversation moving and keep it engaging, which means I'm half listening to you, half looking at my notes, half looking online, thinking about what comes next, and I might not necessarily really be able to learn from everything you're saying. And so going back and doing the show notes, show notes, one, reinforces what you said and lets me learn from what you said, and two, gives me the opportunity to unleash the archival value of this content after time. Sounds great. Uh, so listen, uh, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do this. It's my pleasure. And um, what I'll do is as soon as we have this thing ready to go, I will shoot you out a link and... Uh, this has been uh, uh, Eric Schwartzman with uh, On the Record Online uh, with uh, Steve Lubetkin, a professional podcast. Steve, where's your podcast? Uh, well, you can find uh, our our primary podcast is uh, uh, that we do for in house is uh, Lubetkin on Communications, which you can find at lubetkin.net forward slash blog. It's an occasional conversation with people or a seminar panel with people or sometimes a video. Um, and, uh, of course, lubetkin.net or professionalpodcasts.com is where you'll find uh, the work that we do for clients. Have a great new year. Thank you. You do the same, Eric. Good talking to you. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.